You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The AstraZeneca vaccine rejected by much of Europe as airlines skyrocket higher and tech leads the market up even as inflation fears continue to weigh on risk assets. Welcome to The Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. For all of this and more, I'm joined by Real Vision Managing Editor Ed Harrison. Ed, welcome back to The Daily Briefing. How are you doing? I am okay. I, uh, I'm still a little dazed after uh, daylight savings time for those uh, in Europe, which hasn't shifted over yet. We shifted the clock forward. We sprung forward an, an hour, and uh, and it was uh, it was a rude awakening for me uh, uh, today in particular. Yeah, a little bit of a slap in the face, but uh, you know sometimes you need that that inspiration to really focus on the market. So. Ed, what did you think of the the price action today? You know, pretty flat in the the uh, indices. The Nasdaq ending up just barely over one percent. But one thing that I noticed, Ed, was that the airlines were up a great deal. United Airlines up seven percent. American Airlines up almost eight percent. Um, and just the the Jets ETF up uh, uh, up a great deal as well. Uh, what do you make of that price action? Yeah, so I mean, uh, the the reflation trade is still playing out to a certain degree. Uh, I was just looking across different markets. Uh, we know that Europe. Uh, we can talk to that later. Uh, we saw the bonds rally there on the back of uh, some AstraZeneca vaccine problems. Well, crude was flat. Uh, gold and silver were up today. Uh, looking at that, uh, you know, you talked about the indices, the Dow. You know. Uh, 50 basis points, uh, uh, S&P just uh, 63 uh, per, uh, basis points. It was it was relatively flat. It was somewhat of a calm day, and uh, I think that there was no real direction other than the what you talked about in terms of, terms of the airlines, the U.S. Uh, reflation, people you know looking forward to the reopening. Uh, that's still that rotation is still sort of happening. Yeah, um, just to give a little color on the airlines, so the, the TSA, they give their numbers out every day on the, the checkpoint, the number of total travelers that go through their checkpoint, what they call the throughput. And if you look at this, the black line is that number, and we're at 1.34 million uh, that was on Sunday yesterday, and that annoyingly yellow bright line is the 20-day moving average. So you can see that we are, we are the airline industry is staging somewhat of recovery. Uh, there also were some polite, some good noises coming out of the airline CEOs. I think it was the J.P. Morgan Industrials Conference. The uh, Delta today released a, a, a filing saying that their average daily cash burn is only going to be 12 to $14 million per day for March, which was uh, lower than they thought. So things are um, looking pretty good uh, for the airlines. At least that was how the market perceived it today. Um, but Ed, you talked about Europe. Do you want to pivot there now, because I know you've been following this AstraZeneca story uh, like a hawk, and things are really getting very serious. Uh, do you want to quickly just tell the people at home what's going on there? 
Yeah, uh, you know, even before I get there, let me tell you that uh, I think it's funny that, uh, you know, the we're talking about a cash burn. We're talking a cash burn of 12 to 14 million, and that's supposed to be good news. I mean, incrementally it is, which is how things move at the margin, but it doesn't really tell us what the, the, the new normal for the airlines is going to be. I really strongly suspect that you know, those people buying five and seven and ten thousand dollar tickets uh, for business class are going to be missing relative to the, the sorts of people who are, you know, going to Cancun for vacation. So you know, the jury's still out as to whether or not uh, this rally is for real over the longer term. But on AstraZeneca, you know, basically, there are two things that are happening. One is that the AstraZeneca vaccine in particular has run into problems. Um, it's not just problems in Europe where there are doubts about um, whether it causes problems for health, uh, but also in South Korea, I've seen that there are things of that nature as well. But then there's also the European ability to roll these things out uh, as aggressively as has been done in the U.S. and the U.K. And the European rollout of the vaccine has been marred, both by the inability to get enough people vaccinated, but also by what I would consider uh, fear of the, the existing vaccines that, that are available. And interestingly, th there's been some commentary that some non-EU forces, Russia as an example, uh, are helping to foment a certain level of fear and discord within the EU in order to uh, make sure that uh, you know, it, things go as poorly as possible because they look at the EU as a strategic rival and they want to make sure that, uh, you know, things are not going quite according to plan. That's something that a lot of people haven't been talking about, but there are rumblings of this happening, that the, the discord is actually being amplified by external sources. Yeah, Ed, um, you're absolutely right. I, I think that this really could be a turning point for the vaccine, because you look at the countries in Europe that have uh, suspended the use of the vaccine, France, Italy, Germany, Spain has suspended in, in uh, uh, some, some regions have suspended, even Bulgaria, Latvia, Norway, Ireland, Iceland. So really, there aren't that many countries left in Europe that are allowing this vaccine. Uh, obviously, this will hamper the vaccine efforts to vaccinate the, the broader public uh, and inoculate them against this virus, how significant do you think it, 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 it will hamper them, given, you know, there are other ones. There is Pfizer, there is Moderna, but they're having some supply issues. Um, you know, how bad do you think the damage could be from this? I think that it, it could be bad enough that it really delays the reopening for Europe uh, as compared to the U.S. or the U.K., for sure. And, you know, interestingly, if you look, Axios had a, an article that came out today about two hours ago, they said that 49% of Republican men uh, and 47% of 2020 Trump supporters said that they won't be vaccinated if it's available to them. Okay. So even though uh, we have numbers that are really high in the United States where people actually have said point blank, we're not going to get vaccinated, we still have a rollout that is better. So from a bureaucratic perspective, the Europeans just aren't getting it done. And that makes you think, given their desire or ability to lock down, that we're not out of the woods yet in terms of another wave 
uh, we're not out of the woods yet in terms of uh, problems for Europe's economy. So Europe looks to be a laggard in all of this. That's that's my takeaway there. And it, let's also remember that countries like Italy have said, no way, no how, even though we're not using our vaccines, can you export our vaccines to the likes of Australia? You know, there, there are bans in terms of the, uh, the Europeans trying to hold on to their vaccine. Even the United States is holding on to the AstraZeneca vaccine, even though we haven't actually okayed AstraZeneca for use in the United States as yet. But we're still holding on to our supply in case uh, we do. Ed, um, I want to move on to bonds and inflation versus deflation. Uh, you had a, re a report today uh, off of uh, credit write-downs. It's hot off the presses. And you, you had some, some thinking there about how the market is react reacting to different inflation expectations. What do you see going forward? You know, over the last week or so, I haven't written and I've been thinking about what's been going on in the markets. And there are three narratives that were playing out in my mind. One was the one that you talked about, the inflation versus deflation. There's also the end of cycle versus the beginning of cycle narrative. And then there's the institutional versus the retail investment narrative that we can go through. Uh, the, one, the first one, inflation deflation, has been playing out for me, first and foremost, in terms of bonds. I spoke to Katie Stockton, who's a technical analyst, a few weeks ago, and she pointed out a 114.25 level, if I remember the number, as a point of resistance in the market uh, between a channel of 1% and 150 on the U.S. 10-year. And she said basically that the technical indicators she was looking for were it was two closes, two Friday closes above that level. And then you would see uh, bonds consolidate above that level, move to the top of the range at 150. And this is exactly what happened. In fact, it was interesting the close uh, the second close was well above the 114.25 level. And then the next uh, support level was in the 150 level. And we closed for the second time above 150, the second Friday, uh, last Friday. And we're now at 160. So we're trading well above that support level. So we're in a new, uh, in a new trading range at this point in time. So when I think about inflation and deflation, I'm thinking about the fact that inflation expectations are rising and that it's having a very uh, big impact on the steepening of the yield curve, where the rates at the short end are pinned at zero as a result of the Fed's policy. But people, because they're expecting inflation and therefore they're expecting that the Fed will be preemptive in some capacity relative to what they're saying, uh, the yield curve is steepening. And that's ultimately probably bad for equities, especially uh, technology growth and, and things of that nature. Ed, when you said the word preemptive, could you explain to me and to the audience what you mean there? Because I noticed in your piece today, you really underscored how up until this point, the Fed has been a fundamentally reactive institution. In other words, uh, once things, uh, things, things go extremely badly, such as in March when you had the stock market absolutely crash, then the Fed comes in in droves. But it's not really an anticipatory uh, institution. Could you just shed some light on the difference between reactive and proactive or preemptive? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, so I'm thinking of a reactive, proactive as in what causes the Fed to do whatever it does. So if it's reactive, it's basically the market's forcing the Fed into action versus proactive is that the Fed gets out in front of the narrative uh, that the market's playing and, and they, they actively try to, to build a narrative um, that the market will support, uh, which is not what they're doing now. The market's uh, you know, resisting the Fed. They're front-running the Fed. And so when I think about preemptive, I, what I'm saying is that the the Fed, it has said to us that uh, inflation, it won't fire until it sees the whites of inflation's eyes. Uh, but in reality, the market is saying, we don't believe you. We think that you will preempt inflation. You'll, you'll see 2% inflation, 3%. You'll see uh, the, you know, things gathering pace and you'll be scared and you will react as a result. At a minimum, you'll see us, we, the market, forcing you into that position, and so you, you will react. So I think that uh, they'll move into sort of the inflation preemptive mode at some point in time, but only after something in the market breaks, so only after the market forces them to take action, because the Fed is a naturally reactionary force. Let's get into that, Ed. When you said when something breaks, what is the thing that is going to break? You know, commodity prices are getting very rich. Uh, infla inflation expectations are getting very rich as well. But that's not really a market crash. Uh, so, so where is the chink in the armor that's going to force the, the Fed to intervene, do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, when people talk about the Fed put, a lot of times they're talking about equities. Uh, but when the Fed is talking about the tightening of financial conditions, they're not necessarily thinking about equities first and foremost. They're thinking about credit. And so I think that it's um, breaking in terms of the tightening of financial conditions, which necessarily means that you have some level of closing of the credit markets. That's what would cause the Fed to react. And we did see that in December of 2018. And to a degree, you could say it comes hand in hand with what happens in equities. And then finally, of course, there's the real economy. You know, there's a nexus of the real economy, equities and credit all happening together in some capacity. If you think about, as an example, the, uh, the Nasdaq bubble bursting, was it the fact that the Fed was raising rates that caused uh, you know, a steepening of the yield curve that eventually caused a, a problem to roll over into equities uh, uh, bursting and then the economy fell? Or was it a natural sort of bubble that burst and then that fed over into the real economy and then we had a, um, a recession in the year 2000, 2001? No one really knows. I mean, if you go back to that particular period, it, it, there's really no reason to think that okay, definitely it was the Fed they caused that, or definitely it was the bursting of the bubble, that's what caused the problem, or definitely it was the financial or the economic uh, collapse, the, the, the recession that caused the bursting of the, of the Nasdaq bubble. There's no definite cause and effect. The three interact in some capacity, and so the breakage that we might see could happen on any one of those three levels. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, so often market crashes happen and then the narrative is, is applied after the fact. 
Uh, it's not like the, the crash of 1987, where the Dow Jones plummeted, what, 19 percent? People still don't can't really attribute it to a, a single cause. It's kind of asking, like, oh, why did this tsunami hit this shore instead of this other shore? There's really no rhyme or reason to it, right? And, and you know, I remember, uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, the 87 crash, and I remember that the fears of a recession or a depression were palpable. I mean, that was a massive hit, over 20 percent in one day. People were thinking, you know, that's it. You know, we're going to go into recession right now. And it didn't happen. There wasn't a recession until 1991. So the, they're not necessarily interchangeable. The real economy, the 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 uh, the real economy, the stock market, and the credit cycle. Okay, so Ed, we explained uh, one lens through which you're looking at the market: inflation versus deflation or disinflation. Uh, now, can you tell us about the role of uh, retail traders or how institutional traders are are reacting to uh, retail traders? Yeah, so um, I think this is interesting. I spoke to Larry McDonald earlier today, and he was talking about the fact that there was an incipient move uh, amongst institutional investors, the slow-moving institutional investors, out of uh, the FANG-like stocks, growth stocks, if you will. And they were moving toward the reflation trade relatively uh, late. But, you know, since they have a large percentage of the market, uh, as that, there's still momentum in that trade as a result of that. And uh, they're, in, they're not going to be influenced necessarily by momentum per se. So there's still some oomph left there. But at the same time, if you look at the numbers, if you look at you know, the percentages of trades that are executed per day and who's executing them. Take away high-frequency trading, which is a lot of the market, and you can see a huge increase in the relative proportion of retail traders in terms of their volume. So they're increasing in terms of importance, in terms of the actual momentum of the market. And so the question then becomes, uh, you know, who is moving this market at this point in time? Is the momentum moving as a result of what's happening with small uh, retail investors uh, collectively? You know, you think of GameStop as an example, which was very volatile today, by the way. Or think of, uh, you know, what happened in August, September with the, the FANGs and the short-dated options that people were trading on the FANGs. So, we don't know if they are, are, are moving the markets or if it's still institutional money that is creating the momentum. But there seems to be a sea change in terms of where the momentum is, and it's not clear uh, how long that will, will last or whether it's emblematic of end or beginning of cycle. Well, Ed, that's a perfect segue to my next question. Uh, the last lens through which you view this market is end of cycle versus beginning of cycle. How are you thinking about that, and what do these terms even mean to you? Yeah, so, I mean, first and foremost, it always means credit. I'm thinking about the credit cycle. But, uh, again, you know, this credit cycle, there's the business cycle in terms of the real economy, and there's also, you know, bull and bear markets. And to the degree that you believe that they move together with lags, then you would think that we just had a recession, and uh, we also have had a monster rally in equities, and we've had a tightening of credit spreads to a degree. All three of those are hallmarks of the beginning of cycle. But then when you look under the hood and you see some of the dynamics, uh, it, it, you know, uh, what I would call signposts of 
of cycle uh, beginnings and ends. And when you also look at valuations, you see a completely different story. So, for instance, in a valuation perspective, if you look at the Schiller PE or the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, very high level, the highest ever from which we would start a, a, a cyclical bull market. Uh, you look at other signposts like SPACs and IPOs that are coming in. Uh, the one we were just talking about with regard to retail investors taking over as a percentage of trading. You know, uh, for instance, Charles Schwab, who's a retail brokerage company, they said three times as many people opened uh, retail brokerage accounts at Schwab in February as normal. So those are all signposts of end of cycle types of dynamics. So at the same time that you might think economically because of the pandemic, we bottomed out and we're now off to the races. Really, there are a lot of late cycle um, plays that are playing out. And one that I caught today because of David Rosenberg is interesting, which is the lag with this rotation. You know, we've been talking about the reflation trade and the rotation from growth into value as a sign of, you know, the beginning of cycle. But Rosenberg says, actually, if you think about it, uh, we saw a topping in the NASDAQ, I think it was in January of 2000, and it wasn't until later, maybe it was March or May, that we subsequently saw the S&P 500 and the Dow top out. So it, it could really be that we lost the market leadership in August, September timeframe with the FANGs, because they've pretty much traded flat to nowhere since that time. And we're now trying to find new leadership, but we're not we're not being successful in doing that. So we're seeing this churning, and we're calling it the reflation trade, but really it's a sign that uh, we're we're at the end of cycle. So fascinating stuff uh, with regard to that, and it's still indeterminate what the answer is. Really interesting. What uh, you said about what David Rosenberg said about how the transition went from the Nasdaq. Uh, was at the top, and then it plummeted. But the S&P, it didn't take until later that the, the S&P was at the top. That fits, because uh, I'm actually uh, reading a, a book about Enron right now, and uh, it was the, the high-flying tech stocks with no revenue. It was all about eyeballs. Those were the first ones that dumped. But it wasn't until later 2001 when the telecoms dumped as well. And that's when Enron, of course, was, was under pressure, because it's, it had this broadband business that was supposed to be worth so much that it was worth nothing. Um, and that actually reminds me of what Milton Berg said in his interview with John Hussman. Uh, this interview was filmed um, uh, you know, maybe one, two months ago, before I think tech was selling off. And at the time, Milton made the point, you know, John was very bearish, Milton made the point that uh, everything is working now. You know, SPACs are working, IPOs are working, tech is working, value is working, energy is working, real estate is working, everything. And that is not a sign of a market top. What you a sign of a market top is when things start to overperform relative to other things. And, oh, okay, like today, you know, the airlines are surging, but energy stalled out. Um, you know, obviously we have the sell-off in tech, which is sort of, that hasn't, uh, that, that's reached uh, kind of a, a stasis. Um, we, we unclear where it will go, go from there. Uh, but it, it's really interesting. And I actually, you know, you've got such great examples. I have an example of my own, which is um, a, ch a chart of the Ford Motors, uh, their credit, their yield curve. In other words, how much it costs them to borrow, which on the, the y-axis is, is their, uh, their yield, you know, their, what their interest payments are. Um, so 
as of in the green line, um, as of March 15th last year, so exactly one year ago, um, it, was, it was kind of like this. And then uh, a little over a week later, uh, on March 25th, their yield curve went all the way up here because of the market sell-off, the pandemonium. Uh, you know, people were, were selling everything to sell the good in order to liquidate the bad, yada, yada, yada. Um, as well as also on March 25th, I believe S&P Global downgraded their bonds from triple B minus to double B plus. So it, Ford officially was not just a fallen angel, um, which is the phrase, but the biggest fallen angel. So we got the green, the brown, and then today, uh, the, in the, the dark green line as of today, March 15th, 2021, uh, yields are actually significantly lower than they were a year ago, despite the fact that a year ago they had a higher rating. So you're kind of seeing that renewal uh, of you know yields blowing out and then going back to normal, but you're you're not seeing that rejuvenation of of credit quality. So it has the the trappings of a beginning of cycle. So the the question is, you know, if it quacks like the beginning of a cycle, is it a beginning of a cycle? Because it, it's just so complicated. What what are, you, what are your thoughts there? You know, you know, uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the the Fang, and I was thinking about the retail investor craze if, uh, that happened at the end of the summer. So at the end of the summer. Uh, there was a uh, people were talking about, I think it was SoftBank and the fact that they had this uh, trading strategy, this option strategy. But it also later turned out there was a huge spike in terms of short term uh, options, similar to what we're seeing with the meme stops like GameStop and AMC. And that was driving a lot of the action in the large cap tech space. So Amazon, Facebook, Apple, uh, companies like that. And if you look at the price charts for all these companies since that time, I was just doing that, every single one of them except for Google has topped out over the last six months, ever since that episode happened. So you look at uh, Facebook's chart. Uh, Facebook uh, went all the way up and it topped out in uh, September uh, at like 280-some. Now it's down to 273. Uh, it's been relatively flat during that time. You look at Amazon. Amazon topped out exactly the same time. At the beginning of September, it topped out at you know uh, three thousand uh, three hundred. Now it's at thirty eight hundred. So it's down uh, relative to that period of time. Same thing with Apple. Google is the only one of those uh, four that I've looked at really briefly that has gone up since that time. So the old leadership is dead. So. Uh, w if you think about it, March 2020, that was when we had a new uh, bull market. But yet, uh, we, we had this rally, the reopening rally, that uh, you know was snuffed out in September. And since September, we now need new leadership. Literally six months into uh, th this uh, this new cycle. So to me, it's still indeterminate. So that, that's what I would say is it, it it's almost like the 8082 double dip recession that is 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 that you know if you think of March 2020 as the equivalent of you know mid 1980 uh, you know suddenly we had a resurgence a year later and everyone was excited but then we had another a, a second dip later on and so then the market rolled over so to me it's almost as if we need more time to really figure out where this market is going. And in the meantime, you have to place your bets. You have to stay in the market. You have to decide where you're going to be between now and when you get that certainty 
as to you know how you're going to allocate your assets. If I had to place my bets, I would place them in terms of uh, over the short term, the market's probably going higher. But I think over the medium term, there are more headwinds and that you probably need to hedge against some serious downside risk uh, because the momentum could shift very sharply. So yeah. I think that's that's my explanation there. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. That, that's interesting. I think that uh, that is a strategy worth considering about okay, you have these holdings that are long, all of the factors that are at play right now, um, such as, as, you know, as growth, uh, momentum, and the like. How can I you know, buy, uh, buy a hedge that will, will protect myself if things? Go go bad. So you know, perhaps you want to buy a put option on some of the high flying growth growth stocks that really, you know, they're growing a lot, but they're not. They haven't established market dominance yet. Ed, you mentioned uh, the Fang stocks have kind of been trading in a range since last summer. You're absolutely right. And you know, Facebook is down um, since then. And I was thinking of forget if it was late January, early February, but. February, uh, excuse me, Facebook reported results, and it, they were phenomenal. For, an, for a mature company, they were growing their revenues at 30% per year, and the stock kind of just continued to trade in that range. So I guess that shows uh, just how high the expectations were going into it, whether the market's pricing in, there were going to be some regulatory concerns. Um, but Ed, I, I want to go to another chart, um, as, as you know, we only have a few minutes left, which is uh, the, ch the chart of the 10-year in inflation break-even versus the five-year inflation break even, and then the black line is the spread between them. Um, so normally, the 10-year inflation break even, that is the market's expectations of inflation for the next 10 years, is higher than the uh, five-year inflation. And that kind of makes sense. It's kind of like the yield curve, but for inflation. The market you know, thinks that inf inflation will uh, rise for a marginal year. However, this time, uh, that spread has gone negative. And it's actually the lowest uh, that I've been able to record it since 2003, um, meaning that 32 basis points of uh, more inflation for um, the five-year than the 10-year. And to me, Ed, that confirms the mainstream narrative that inflation is coming, but it's going to be temporary. It's going to be cyclical. It's not going to be secular. And actually, that's what Rao voiced uh, to Ash on the Daily Briefing on Friday that yes, inflation is coming, but you know I still am a big believer in secular disinflation. Uh, what do you make of that view that inflation is going to be uh, cyclical? And uh, what do you think of the chart? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's interesting how you di you didn't say transitory because you wanted to avoid sounding like you were Jay Powell in the Fed. <laughs> but um, I, I I agree with the concept that the secular disinflation is still at play. And that um, there, there's nothing that I've seen that makes me think that after a brief period of time, we, uh, that, that won't overwhelm some of the, uh, the transitory forces, some of which are supply sh side uh, shocks uh, from receding. So, you know, once you, you get through these bottlenecks, these supply side bottlenecks, uh, things will be back to normal. And that's where there's going to be moderate disinflation. 
And that's pernicious to a certain degree unless you have wage inflation, which, uh, you know, which is where you get real inflation because, you know, it's, it's uh, inflation in the things that you need, but uh, disinflation in the things that you want. And the less money you have, the more things you need relative to your income. Uh, it's the people who have the most income who, relative to their income, they have a much smaller percentage of the things that they need, and then they can buy the things that they want where the disinflation is. So that sort of creates uh, an opportunity for uh, inequality to continue to flourish. You know, I was thinking during this whole thing about Mark Cuban, actually. You know, Mark Cuban put on this collar. So when we were when you were talking about the puts uh, for the high flyers, I mean, one way to to structure it is to say, look, you know, I think there's limited upside here over the uh, over the medium term. I think that if uh, you know, I see so much speculation, I'm willing to give up some of the upside for the positions that I have uh, by um, taking off the downside of, of these positions. So uh, you know, I will. Um, you know, sell out of the money uh, for the uh, for these calls, but then I will use that that premium in order to buy these puts that are also out of the money. So that means that I'm collared in this range, so that you know, you I put my 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 shares to you. Uh, you know, if I get 20, 30 percent upside, but if I get 30 percent downside then I'm taken out of that position, and that's the maximum loss that I can take. So it's that kind of situation that we're in now. And, you know, if that's really where we are, you know, Cuban, he timed the market pretty well because ultimately, you know, you had the blow off top, and he got taken out of his position, uh, and but he, he, he didn't get any of the downside. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it sounds like a phenomenal trade. Mark Cuban's obviously an incredibly smart guy. I might, you know, just we'll give it a little advice to the to the audience. Uh, go and if you want to know whether you should be selling calls, go and look at your bank account. And if you don't see three commas, don't sell calls. But <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, Ed, uh, as we reach to a close, I, I just really really quickly want to say that uh, I did an interview with financial historian Jamie Catherwood that comes out tomorrow, and he touches on a lot of these themes that we've been talking about, Ed, that are so important now. But so many people say, oh, this is unprecedented. Well, he shows it's not unprecedented. Retail fervor, not unprecedented. He talks about the bucket shops, where you could basically have uh, margin 20 to 30 to 1 uh, and bet on a single stock. And it would really you know, be more similar to playing blackjack than it was uh, actually investing or allocating capital. He also has a very interesting analogy between non-fungible tokens and you know things going on sale for $70 million. As, and he compares it to collectibles throughout history about how you know wealthy Victorian um, in Victorian England wealthy merchants would pay you know tens of thousands of dollars just for shells and that's how actually Royal Dutch Shell was called that because the nice. founder was a collect and he also compares it to uh, the how uh, samurais were basically paying you know hundreds of yen for rabbits from Western traders after during the Meiji Restoration and how. Uh, you know, so like the most expensive rabbit went for 600 yen at a time when the average monthly rent was uh, 0.5 yen. So. And, you know, so they, uh, as they say, the past is prologue. That's what I would say with that. I love financial history. And let me finish it off by, as you said that, I actually have the, the numbers from Mark Cuban. 
uh, what he did to give you an example of it. So he, uh, Mark Cuban says that Yahoo, which is what he received, he received 14.6 million shares of Yahoo trading at $95 at the time. So what he did is for each 100 shares of Yahoo stock, you know, one contract of a put at a strike of 85, he bought that. And then he uh, one contract of a call with a strike of 205, which is much higher, he sold that. So in total, there are 146,000 of these contracts of calls and 146,000 contracts of puts that he traded. And the premium from the put exactly offset the premium of the call. So there was zero cost to the trade. And so zero cost, he sat there. He had a very limited uh, opportunity set. Uh, and this was uh, a three-year option. These options expired in three years. And when the option uh, period was over, he was out of the position, and he was a billionaire. Wow, what a trade. Well, Ed, I, I know we're running over, but really quickly, this kind of captured the news cycle today. Tesla released a corporate filing saying that oh, yeah. it officially, effective as of March 15th, 2021, the titles of Elon Musk and Zach Kirkhorn have changed to Techno King of Tesla and Master of Coin, respectively. So what do you think about that? The CEO is now the Techno King of Tesla, and the CFO, Chief Financial Officer, is now the Master of Coin. Your thoughts, Ed? Uh, passes prologue again. You know, dot com. I add dot com to uh, my name, and then suddenly I'm worth more. I mean, Elon Musk is thinking that somehow I can make myself a crypto king and then that's going to make my company a different company. But we see the chart. Tesla peaked uh, much higher. I don't think it's coming back. Mm. Uh, well, Ed, a bold call. Uh, I would uh, tend to think that you, you could be right. Very compelling reasons to think you're right. Uh, I want to have Jared Dillian back. You know, he about a month ago made that call and he could not have been timed better. But uh, Ed, thanks so much for joining, as always. Great to have you. Yeah. Very nice, Jack. Good to talk to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.